All right, it's 9 o'clock, so let's get started. Good morning. Welcome to the Biblical Counseling 101 Sunday School class, Why Do I Do What I Do and How Can I Change? We are on the second to last lesson here. And don't forget that this is a foundation-setting course. This is not an exhaustive course. You might say, wait, but we've hardly talked about this, and I need more information about that. I understand, but this is just foundational, and we'll get to some of the other things, Lord willing, in the future. Do I need to adjust my mic at all here? Okay. <clears throat> well, let's pray as we get ready for today's lesson. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of training. I pray, Lord, that it be profitable and help me be able to explain well. And God, make us into what you've called us to be, those who can counsel, encourage, confront one another, and cause one another to go after you in a more consistent way. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, before we get to today's lesson, let's talk a little bit about your homework. Won't say as much about it today because aside from the Bible reading and prayer, the journals are really something that's meant for you privately. But I did want to take any time for questions. Do you have any questions about the tea journals I had you uh, asked you to do for homework last week? Yeah, go ahead. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Um, maybe we could talk about that afterwards, and maybe I'll walk you through that a little bit more specifically. But, yeah. If you have any questions, if you're like, I don't really get it, I don't understand how to do it, uh, you can talk about it uh, with me afterwards. But anything specific you want to ask about? Okay. Uh, and don't forget the extra credit from last week, the notes on pride. What's our homework for this week? Well, I told you that I wanted you to actually do this journal for several weeks. That way you have more of a time to see what's the pattern, if there is a pattern, and are you able to implement changes? Because remember, the, the last step in the journal entries is transformation. How does God want me to change? How is his word and his spirit enable me to do that? So I want you to be able to see that some, over some weeks of time. So continue writing in your journals. And also I have some more notes that we won't be able to get to in today's class, but some that are pretty important. And those are notes on crisis and suicide counseling. Now. That's not necessarily a super common situation that any one of us will face, but it could be. could be something that we face. We won't have time to talk about it in class, but I will make those notes available for you electronically as extra credit. All right. Oh, I should say, I think we'll even think about counseling somebody who's 
contemplating suicide would feel like, whoa, that is beyond me. There's no way I could ever help that kind of person. That's too, too stressful and important. But really, it's just another version of what we do in counseling in general. And many of the things we've talked about already in this course and the things that we're going to be talking about today. I've given you a lot of a theological and theoretical foundation for counseling, but today I want to get very, very, very practical and really talk about a method. What's an, a way to apply all these principles that we've talked about in a, in a method that you can practice? And that's what I'm going to talk about this week and next week. How to counsel. Today is part one. Next week, in our final class, we'll do part two. Here's a method. This is not the, the terms and the number of steps is not inspired, but this is an application of biblical principles we've looked at. Here's a method of biblical counseling. Number one, begin counseling. Two, gain involvement. Three, gather data. Four, interpret data. Five, provide instruction. Six, give homework. Seven, give hope. And then eight, end your counseling. Now, the steps of this method are roughly chronological, but they do overlap. So don't feel like you're not going to do uh, step one or step three after the beginning of your counseling. No, you're going to be doing that throughout. But certain steps happen more in the beginning and certain steps happen more at the end. Today we're just going to talk about the first four steps and we'll do the next, five, or the next four in our last class. Now imagine that Someone actually comes to you for counseling. You say, this is all nice, yeah, I'm learning, but imagine you actually have to counsel someone. Someone comes to you, brother, I, I really need help overcoming immorality. Sister, I'm struggling so much with anxiety. Or friends, our marriage is about to fall apart. Can you help us? How would you respond? Or maybe a person doesn't come looking to you for help, but you notice that they need help get involved in someone's life, or you're talking to his family members, and you can see, man, this person needs some focused discipleship. They need some counseling. Now, unfortunately, it's a fact that most people don't reach out for the help of biblical counseling until it's reached an absolute crisis, until they're in dire straits. You don't want to do that if you're ever struggling with something spiritually. Reach out early. There's much. Uh, it'll be a lot less painful that way. You will have a lot less damage in your life. But most people don't. So just be ready for that. But whether you reach out to someone or someone reaches out to you, how do you begin? That's what I want to first talk about. The first step in biblical counseling is to actually begin counseling. Quick aside, I've given you kind of bare notes on your handout today because otherwise it would be way too much for me to include on there. So be ready to write some notes. I'm sorry if you're... Maybe not ready to write so much, but I've written, I think, the most important points on the slides. Take them down in the notes, and of course, the slides will be available afterwards. How do you begin counseling? What does beginning a counseling relationship involve? Some things. First of all, absolute prayer and dependence on the Lord. I'm giving you a laid-out technique, but none of this is possible apart from the power of Christ. The work is beyond us. All Christian ministry is really beyond us and counseling included. Everything you do in counseling needs to be surrounded in prayer. Make sure you're also ready to counsel. You need to be spiritually ready. You need to be walking with the Lord and practicing spiritual disciplines yourself if you're going to counsel someone else effectively. 
You can't preach what you don't practice, or at least you shouldn't, if you want to be effective. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 7, don't tell your brother, hey, you've got a speck in your eye, let me get it out for you, when you've got a log in your own eye. You either won't be effective, or you'll only be effective in teaching hypocrisy. Now, don't then say, well, you know, I, I still sin so much, I, I could never counsel anyone. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction of your life. Are you walking with the Lord? Are you pursuing Him consistently? You want to make sure you're doing that before you counsel. You also want to be knowledgeably equipped. You need to know the Scriptures. I mean, that's what biblical counseling is, right? You're ministering the Bible, the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to have some competency in it and even some competency to talk about the specific issue that you will be counseling somebody in. Somebody is really struggling with parenting their kids and you have no idea how to address that, you're not the right one to counsel them. You need to have competency in handling people. If you're completely socially unaware, if you have no ability to relate to people, that's going to make, you, that's going to make it really hard for you to counsel someone. Now, you might hear some of those things and be like, oh, well, I guess I'll, I can't counsel. You know, I'm not good with people or uh, I don't know the Bible that well. So I guess I'm not going to be a counselor. Wrong. The Bible's called you to counsel. We're all to be doing these one anothering, ministering the word to one another. So the excuse is, well, I'm not equipped to do it. I can't do it. The response should be, I need to get equipped to do it. I need to learn how to deal with people. I need to become patient. I need to become competent in the scriptures. You and I are both called to counsel and minister to others. So if you have to, get your life in order. Get your mind trained. Don't just excuse yourself. One other matter of preparation is that you need to be logistically able to counsel. You have to understand that counseling takes time, it takes energy, and it takes, it takes uh, tolls, not the right word, but it is an emotional commitment, a, a commitment of the inner man. It is spiritually weighty to uphold another person who is going through a spiritual struggle. It will, in certain degree, burden your spirit and will also, at times, lead to your own temptation to sin. Maybe somebody's so anxious and it encourages you to be anxious or somebody's struggling with immorality and you're tempted that way now too because they're, they're, tra- they're telling you about their issue. Because of this weightiness, it is important that you do not take on too many counseling persons, counseling cases at once. When I was in seminary and becoming trained as a biblical counselor, I was talking with somebody who had done it for a while. I was like, well, how many cases should you take on at once? And he said, well, I've never known anybody who's done more than four at a time. And even that is it's pretty a lot. I think one of the missionaries that, that we support has talked about counseling in their church, and they said the same thing. Hey, you know, we feel like it's just too much to go, I think they may even mention three or four. And so you want to be aware of that. Don't overcommit because otherwise it can be really, really spiritually draining. Of course, you have other life obligations. You want to make sure you're not overextending yourself in any kind of ministry. You never want to get to the point where you don't have time for people. I remember one of my seminary professors emphasizing that to me. But also, you don't want to overcommit and not really be able to minister to people well. If you're not able logistically to counsel someone, don't just be like, sorry. Direct them to others who can. 
or give them something to do in the meanwhile until you're ready to counsel them. Hey, you know what? I'm not ready just because of things going on in my life right now to counsel you as you've asked me to, but here's a great book that I've used in this issue. Why don't you read that and we can come and talk about it later? Something like that. So make sure you are ready to counsel. And then begin your first session. Do an exploratory first session. A first meeting with your counselee or counselees, if it's a couple, and find out about the problem. Say, hey, I need, I need some help in this area. Find out more about it. In this first session, you also want to give hope and preliminary instruction, which we'll talk about more. But also, super important, you want to set proper expectations in your first session. I want to find out if they're really serious. Because counseling is a good labor. And there's a lot of need for it. But it is labor. And it's important that you spend your time as a servant and steward of Christ most profitably. And that means you want to spend it with people who are actually serious about changing. You'll partly need to convince them of that, motivate them to do that, but if they're half-hearted in the beginning or if they hear about some sort of expectation, be like, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, better for you not to waste your time and theirs by proceeding on formal counseling with them. Even the disciples were instructed by Jesus to practice this principle. Matthew 7, 6 says, don't lay your pearls before swine. We'll just trample them and then tear you to pieces. And when it came to even going out and evangelizing people in the cities, Jesus says to them in Matthew 6:11, if they don't listen to you, leave that city, shaking the dust off of your feet as a testimony to them. You say, oh, you're just going to give up? Well, the idea is there are other places that you can go, other people who might be more willing to listen. And we see actually the apostles do this in Acts 13:46. Paul and Barnabas are preaching in a synagogue and the Jews and some leaders begin to fiercely oppose them. And so they say, since you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, we now are going to turn to the Gentiles. They will listen. Of course, that doesn't mean that you give up any time there's difficulty or resistance, but it does mean you want to use your time effectively. Counseling is good labor. You want to use it well. So what are some proper expectations you want to set for someone in formal counseling? Now, a lot of this I'm talking about is more formal counseling. You might do this more informally with a friend or a family member. So some of what I'm telling you might be a little adjusted. But what are proper expectations for counseling that you want to communicate to someone when you're committing to them? I've listed a number of them here. Generally, a good way to format your meeting together is weekly one-hour sessions. This is not a hard rule, but a, a good general principle. Over an hour, oftentimes it's hard for your counselees to focus. Under an hour, it's hard to get anything meaningful done. Meeting weekly is helpful because it allows you to consistently meet with a counselee, help them establish new patterns of thinking and acting, while also giving them time to actually apply it. If you meet with them every day, well, you don't have much time to see whether they're implementing what you've taught or to have them do the homework. So generally, one hour weekly is good. 
you want to communicate to your accounts lead that you expect them to actually meet with you consistently. Be there and be on time. If this is a problem, if a counselee keeps on canceling or if they keep on showing up late, that may show a lack of seriousness. And you might even need to address that. Communicate also that you expect them to do homework, uh, just like I've kind of expected you to do in this class. Your one-hour meeting is not a therapy session, not just something that they do and then forget about it. It's also not the magic hour where all the change happens. It's just guidance. I think I've said something very similar for this course. I've kind of tried to model counseling for you even in the way I do this class. The one-hour time is just guidance to direct them in the process of change as they pursue the set of means that you've encouraged them to take hold of. Church fellowship, Bible reading, prayer, the preaching of the word, and the homework. Homework is really where the magic happens. And you want to stress your importance to the counselee of doing the homework. If they are not willing to do the homework, if they keep coming up with excuses, only, only partly do the homework, that is a problem. And it may be an indication that they're not serious, not serious about changing. You want to be understanding of unexpected life events, tragedies, crises that come up in their lives, but don't simply excuse they're not doing the homework. Oh, you know, yeah, you had a lot going on, so I guess uh, we won't worry about the homework. No, the homework is important. That's where they'll get lots of reinforcement and further instruction and direction beyond what you're saying in the counseling hour. Tell them you expect them to do the homework and to do it completely. Also, expect them, communicate your expectation that they be in church and be in a good church. I've learned this the hard way. One of the counseling couples that Emma and I worked with in California didn't go to a good church. They didn't go to our church, and it was so much harder because you end up trying to basically unteach some of the things that they're learning in a not-so-good church. Or if they're not going into church of all, they're missing out on a major means of grace, a major extra way for them to grow spiritually. Tell them that you expect them to attend church. If you're going to counsel them, you expect them to attend church and attend a good church. How do you know it's a good church? Best way to know, have them attend your church. That way you can say, I know you're going to a good church. And that gives you extra opportunity to observe and interact with them and even serve them. So say, hey, I'd love to counsel you, but one of the things that I need you for you to do, if I'm going to do that, is I need you to attend my church. Again, if they're serious, this shouldn't be that big of a deal. But it is important. Even if it's not your church, that's probably the best way. It needs to be a good church, a church that you can be confident in. Another expectation, communicate that you would like to assess the direction of your counseling after six weeks. It's not good for counseling to go on forever. You may be tolerating a lack of commitment or getting a person reliant on you as the counselor rather than on Christ. So communicate, hey, I'm, I'm committing to you. I want to work with you. But let's see how we're doing after six weeks. And then see if we need to adjust something or address something. Generally, in formal counseling, a little different from discipleship, you don't want to go past 10 sessions. That's not an absolute rule, but 
there's usually an issue, there's a problem if there's no change after 10 weeks of meeting and doing the homework. So inform your counselee up front that you are committed to them, but you want to do this wisely and allow both you and them to assess the progress after six weeks. What about payment? Should a counselor expect payment for his counseling? Two schools of thought on this. Some say you should accept payment or even ask for payment. 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, ministers of the gospel should be fed by the gospel. This is true of pastors, right? Why not true of biblical counselors? This is hard work. You have to put in a lot of preparation. You should get something for it. And people will take you more seriously if there's money involved. Don't charge an exorbitant amount, but if they're going to commit, have them show that in being willing to pay for it. That's one school of thought. And then another school of thought is don't accept payment at all. Yes, ministers of the gospel can exercise the right to be fed by those who they minister to, but remember, Paul gave up that right for the sake of the gospel. He says, I don't want this to be a stumbling block to you. I will, I will uh, do anything to let anyone not take this reward from me, which is to give the gospel without charge. It does help you gain trust from your counselees when you're not doing it with money involved. They don't have to suspect, oh, is he just doing this for the money? It also gets away from a more clinical model to a more church-oriented model. If we're ministering to one another in the church, we're not expecting payment for it, are we? Just generally in the body? It's more like a medical, clinical model to say, yep, okay, you've got to pay my doctor's fee and then I'll see you. There's also some legal protections in not asking for money. Some states, if you counsel and charge for your counseling, they will not allow you to say certain things, or you could be sued. If you're not charging money at all, you have much more freedom, at least before the law. I will say also personally, it's been my practice not to charge any money for biblical counseling, and even with the, those I was some of my first cases as I was training to be a biblical counselor in California, at least one couple, I think multiple people said this, but one couple was just amazed that I was not charging any money, that we were not charging any money, Emma was counseling with me. Because they had been to a number of other counselors, both Christian and secular, who all charged money, and also said, hey, after a certain number of weeks, like, forget it, I'm just done. But we said, hey, we are, if you're committed and you show us your commitment, we're committed to you. And we don't want to charge. They were amazed by that and so grateful for that. So I don't think it's wrong. I understand those who do take the approach of accepting payment. But I favor, and I would encourage you to, informal counseling, not to charge anything. This is Dr. John Street's stance. He's the one who trained me in counseling. This is also the organization ACBC's general stance, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. I think it's the best way. Two other clarifications that you want to give to your counselees. Clarify for them in your first session, if not before, what you can and cannot do for them. It's always good to find out from your counselees what they actually expect from counseling. What do they expect to gain? And most of them will say, I want better circumstances. I want a better marriage. I want my spouse to come back. 
I want my sibling to stop acting so evil towards me. So they're not wrong desires, but they're not the best desires. Don't get sidetracked by just taking on the counselor's agenda. Oh, that's what you want? Okay, I'm going to help you do it. You can't necessarily do what they want you to do. And you're not called to do so. You want to communicate them, communicate to them, hey, I'd love to see your marriage improve. I'd love to see your spouse come back. I'd love to see your sibling act in a better way. And as you put together, as you put into practice some of this counsel, maybe that will happen. But ultimately, I can't guarantee that. I can't change your circumstances necessarily, but I can do this. I can teach you how to be God's kind of man or God's kind of woman in the middle of your circumstances. I can, t- I can teach you. I can help you. I can guide you in following after the Lord with joy and peace in the middle of whatever circumstances you find yourself in. If the counselee is truly a Christian, and you want to give a little bit of reinforcing instruction on this, they should be interested in this. Say, okay, all right, I'm good with that. But if they're not, then it's not really profitable for you to counsel them. Bring out this expectation up front. If your counselor really wants to honor Christ, tell them that's what you can help them do. But you can't necessarily change their circumstances and fix their problems. Finally, if you've laid all that out and they're still interested, ask for an expression of commitment. Either, or certainly verbally, and maybe even in writing. I've explained all this to you. This is what we want to do. Are you committed to this? Are you ready to do the hard work of sanctification, growing in Christ? Are you willing even to go all out so that you can walk with Christ and honor him in this area of your life? It's a sign. If they can express this commitment that they, are, that they understand what's going on and they're serious. And when you get them to verbally express that or in writing, it's something you can point back to if they start to not really apply themselves or to resist the counsel that you're giving. Hey, didn't you say that you were committed to doing whatever the Lord would require you to honor him in this area? Why is it that you're not doing the homework? Or why is it that you, you won't do the thing that the Bible calls you to do? So it's good to get an express verbal commitment and verbally commit to them. Say, you commit to me, I'm committed to you. So lay out these expectations. As you begin counseling, pray, make sure you're ready, have an exploratory first meeting, and set expectations. Now, from your first interaction with your counselee, you also want to be doing something else. And it's the second part, or the second step of the method, and that is gain involvement. Gain involvement. What does that mean? Well, to gain involvement means to build a relationship with your counselee so that you put yourself in a position to help him. Actually build a relationship so you can actually help him. That's what gaining involvement is. You want your counselee, you need your counselee to trust you. He needs to let you be involved with his life. You want to help him, but you can only do that if he actually lets you be involved, and interact with him. There's a statement that I heard in seminary that applies well to every kind of Christian teaching and preaching and counseling ministry, and that's this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If you fail to gain involvement with someone, you can speak eloquently and accurately 
about their spiritual issues, but they probably will not listen because they don't think you care. They don't trust you. You want everything you do as a counselor to communicate to your counselee that you genuinely care. You love them with Christian love. And this is what we see in the Bible. You know, Jesus was marked for his compassion for people. Matthew 9, 36, Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You need to feel compassion, and you need to communicate that. It motivated Jesus to teach and to serve, and it should motivate you too. Or look at Paul. When he's talking to the Ephesians, before he's headed to Jerusalem and, and imprisoned for Christ, he tells them, Acts 20.31, Therefore be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one of you, or each one with tears. That's that word admonish, which we've looked at before, nuthateo, to counsel or to speak to another person's mind. And he says, I did it with tears. I cared. And I was communicating that to you every day. Or as he explains in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 to 8, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 to 8, speaking about his ministry, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you do the greatest Christian service and don't have love. It counts for nothing. It's actually annoying. Your counselee will sense whether you really care and love them. Just like your children do, right? If you're trying to do something spiritual but your heart's not in it, your kids will notice. And other people will too. You want to make sure that you're gaining involvement with your counselee by communicating and actually having genuine care. You want to become your counselee's friend. For how do we regard friends? Listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs 27.6 Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Do you know someone's your friend? They may say something wounding, but you say, ah, I needed that. Thanks. You'll regard the words of a friend. Actually, another proverb says the same thing. Proverbs 27.9 Proverbs 27.9 Oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. If you're someone's friend, your counsel to them will be sweet. You want to become your counselee's friend. Now, this isn't always easy. Now, a lot of times, especially if you're not doing formal counseling, you're already that person's friend. Just the reason why they come to you for counsel. So gaining involvement is a lot easier. But sometimes someone's referred to you through someone else or... You're just getting to know a person, and gaining involvement is going to take a little bit more time. And if the person doesn't have very many friends or is slow to trust people, it'll be even harder. But you can do it, especially as you communicate true love and compassion. What are some specific ways you can gain involvement? There are too many for me to list on the slide, but I'll just mention them to you. These are just example ways. How can you gain involvement, gain trust, gain friendship from your counselee? Be available. You're already going a long way to gain involvement when you say, hey, I'm ready to meet with you, to speak with you, and to help you. Be available. Also, show tangible compassion. If they have physical needs, meet them. Do what you can to meet them. 
Serve your counselees. Speak words of sympathy and understanding. Remember, true compassion is always moved to action. They should see your compassion in what you do for them. Also, take your counselee seriously. Don't minimize his problems. But do maximize Christ's supremacy and sufficiency through those problems and over those problems. Persuade your counselee. Do not simply seek to manipulate or order around your counselee. And we see a good example of this in the book of Philemon. In a somewhat comical way, Paul says, I could order you what to do as an apostle, but instead I appeal to you, because I know that's much more effective. Express confidence in your counselee's ability to change and obey Christ by faith. I know you can change by God's Spirit. Receive your counselees and object, objections and disagreements without getting defensive. Uh, this is a little, little harder, right? Hey, I was willing to help you, but now you're getting upset with me? Forget it. Now you'll gain involvement if you show patience through that and help them even when they, they do have questions and objections. Adhere to principles of confidentiality with your counselee, but explain the limits. Obviously, counselees will not trust you if they think that you're going to share what they consider their deepest and darkest secrets. Yet you should not simply say, oh, I'll tell no one, because you can't commit to that. It might be necessary and edifying for you to discreetly share some information that your counselor shared with you with someone else, like in a matter of church discipline or in a matter before the law. So a good way to explain it to your counselor is to say, if they're pressing you to be confidential, I will be as confidential as the law and the Bible allows. I will respect your desire for privacy. Be honest and open with your counselee about yourself, your credentials as a counselor. Why should they listen to you? Not because you're so great, but just because you're a servant of Christ who's become trained by God's grace. Be honest about your own struggles and overcoming sin and struggle by faith in Christ. Hey, don't think that I'm totally perfect, but I have grown. That'll be encouraging to your counseling. Be honest about your values and convictions. Be honest about your agenda, your goals, and your methods in counseling. You don't have to keep secret as if you have to keep all your cards hidden for what you're going to do with your counselee. You're like, no, this is what I want to do, and this is why. I think this will be helpful for you. Be transparent with what you want to do in counseling. That'll help you gain trust. Model the fruit of the Spirit to your counselee. That's a way to be winsome. Communicate clearly, appropriately, and helpful to your counselee. Listen well to your counselee. Be solution-oriented for your counselee. And pray with your counselee and for your counselee, both in the session and outside of the session. In my counselling, I always open in prayer, and then I pray with my counselee at the end. I pray and the counselee prays. We could sum up all these examples of gaining involvement with the simple truth for the simple exhortation to love your counseling. God's love is powerful. And so when you love someone with God's love, it makes an impact on their heart. They open up to you. You know, it's kind of interesting. When I first started biblical counseling, another counselor said to me, you know, many of my best friends today are people that I counseled. Which kind of makes sense. When you've shown love in such a tangible way to people and they've really opened up in their lives with you, when you finish counseling, you find that you're good friends. 
And you should find that to be the case too, as you counsel and help one another. Counseling is one of the most loving acts you can do, especially when someone is facing a real crisis. So, number one, begin counseling. Number two, gain involvement. Third and very important step in how to counsel is, number three, gather data. Now, I've stressed this one to you already in this course by quoting to you two Proverbs that I probably mention all the time when it comes to counseling. Proverbs 18.13. Proverbs 18.13. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. And Proverbs 18.17. Proverbs 18.17. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. If you're going to speak knowledgeably, skillfully, and helpfully to someone's inner man issue, you need to gather data first, and lots of it. You'll prove yourself to be a fool if you say, ah, oh, you don't need to tell me, I know what's going on. You will give ineffective counsel. And oh, I'll wait for that just a second. Again, this is the model that we see prescribed for us even in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Notice how the approach changes depending on the type of person in the situation he's in. How do you know which one you need to do? You've got to find out. You've got to gather data and information. And Jesus did this very well, did he not? Consider the different ways he spoke to Nicodemus as compared to the Samaritan woman or the Pharisees, or his fellow minister, John the Baptist, or the rich young ruler, or Mary, or Martha. Ephesians 4.29, Ephesians 4.29 says that if we're going to, we always should speak in an edifying way according to the needs of the moment. What are the needs in the moment? Again, you won't know, and you won't be as effective as you could be unless you find out. You need to gather data. What kind of data should you gather? All kinds. I've listed some examples here, example categories. Physical data. How's your sleep? Tell me about your medications. What's your diet like? What are activity levels? Illnesses? Injuries you have or have suffered? Resource and relational information. Job and school situation. Your social situation. Your family situation. Emotional data. Feelings. Attitudes. Emotional extremes. Your personality. Action data. What's the behavior been? What sins of a omission or commission have occurred? Conceptual data. What are your goals, your values, your desires, your motives? And historical data. Notable experiences, successes, failures, problems in the past and present for your counselee. You want to find out a lot of information. And how do you do this? How do you gather this data? Well, first... There is the mighty PDI, the Personal Data Inventory. If you've never heard of that, I understand, because it's something usually only biblical counselors talk about. What is this? It is a form that counselors often ask their counselees to fill out before beginning formal counseling. I'm going to include one in the follow-up to today's class so you can, you can see an example. What this form is, it can be two pages or four pages, it's a number of blanks and questions that just help give a whole lot of data background data to your counselor or to the counselor. Many questions like 
the ones that I just mentioned to you and the categories that I've listed on the slide. This is a very helpful tool. It already allows you to go into your first counseling session with some idea of what's going on and what kind of new data you'd like to gather. Okay, you know, they mentioned that they're dealing with this, and I see that they're on several medications. I'm going to need to find out more about this and see when they started this and whether that corresponds at all to the development of their problems. Or I see that they've listed, um, even though they, they've told me that their marriage is having trouble, I see on his PDI he's listed anxiety as a major issue. This could be connected to the interpersonal problems that are going on in the relationship. He's got something else going on in his heart. So helps you figure out what kind of questions you want to follow up with. Now, I understand that PDI is kind of a formal tool and maybe not something that you'd feel comfortable asking another person in the church to do. Hey, you know, we want to meet for, you know, one-on-one counseling. Here's this big form I want you to fill out. Actually, it's not that big. But I would even encourage you to use it even for informal counseling. It's just such a great and efficient way to gather lots of data. Say, hey, I know this is a little weird, but could you fill out this form for me? It'll help me a lot in trying to help you. But even if you don't use a PDI, you would still do well to find out the same bits of information that usually are on a PDI. Where do you live? What medications do you take? Have you ever been in counseling before, either secular or biblical? How did that counseling go? Did you implement the counsel? Why or why not? What do you expect me to do for you as a counselor? And many other type of questions. Again, whether you use a PDI or not, the main way you're going to be gathering data is by asking many and good questions. You're going to have to ask a lot of questions. Ask questions extensively, a little bit about a lot. Tell me about this, tell me about that, tell me about this. And also ask questions intensively, a lot about a little. Hmm, you mentioned this, tell me more. Usually the way this works in an actual counseling situation is that you ask a number of broad questions and then when answers indicate something important or relevant, you drill down more. Oh, you, uh, you mentioned that you don't have a good relationship with your father. Tell me what happened. Or... Um, uh, you, you say that you've really changed in your spiritual life over the last two months. Tell me what started that. You can drill down further. When you're asking questions, you certainly want to ask questions that establish facts. How? What? Where? When? What for? How often? But you also want to ask open-ended questions, much better than yes or no questions. A closed yes or no type question would be something like, do you want to get married? And that doesn't give you a lot of data. Better is to ask, what are your thoughts about marriage? Mm, that, that will reveal more of what your counselor is really thinking. Try to use open-ended questions and ask specific questions, not vague questions. And don't settle for vague or general answers. As my counseling teacher, Dr. Street, liked to say, you've got to get people out of Vegsville and Fuzzyland. So if they give you a vague answer, say, can you be more specific? And make sure you understand their answers. Don't just assume you know exactly what they mean if there's some question. One of the best questions you can ask as a counselor is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You said this. What do you mean by that? 
And as you ask all kinds of questions and listen to all kinds of answers, and by the way, you should explain to your counselee beforehand, this is part of gaining involvement, that this is what you will be doing. You'll be asking many questions. This is because you just want to get to know their situation so that you can help them. As you're doing that, you want to be taking notes. Otherwise, you're just not going to remember the information that your counselees are telling you. Take notes physically and mentally. And again, tell them, hey, I'm going to take notes. This is just so that I can help me think through what you're telling me and so I can minister to you in an effective way. Take notes physically, also mentally, and mark important areas for further questioning. Oh, they just said something really important. Let me highlight that in my notes. Look for patterns, significant statements, habits. We'll say more about that in just a second. Also, you want to make note of your counselee's countenance. Not all of the information has to be spoken directly to you by the counselee. What information does he give to you non-verbally? Maybe by his posture, his expression, size, tears. Now be careful about nonverbal cues. They are easy to misread, but it is part of the data that you're gathering. If something nonverbal sticks out, note it. One other reminder as you ask questions, be careful not to betray horror, disgust, or judgment, no matter what your counselee tells you. People will tell you shocking things in counseling. Uh, this is something... I definitely experienced in my counseling, when I first started, I couldn't believe some of the things that people would admit. That's what you think about your spouse? Or that's what you did? Even after I just counseled you? I'm a little more used to it now. We should never not be shocked to some degree by sin, but remember what you're doing. Remember what you're there for. You're there to try and gather data in order to help your counselee overcome sin and follow Christ. If your countenance betrays judgment or disgust of your counselee, you will probably lose involvement before you get the chance to really help your counselee. So don't betray your shock. And you can admit, I'm really sorry to hear that. Now, asking questions is your primary way to gather data, but there are some other ways. I mentioned looking at nonverbal cues, but you can also get information from others aside from your counselee. But be careful about this. Don't get information, say, from the counselee's spouse or from other friends of the counselee without telling your counselee ahead of time that this is what you're going to do. Hey, I'd, I'd like to ask some of your family members uh, about the situation. Uh, unless uh, there's something that was totally public, like a crime, you don't necessarily have to ask permission or inform your counselee, but that'll prevent some misunderstanding between you and your counselee. You can ask others. You can also give your counselee your own perspective based on what he's telling you and invite, your, invite his feedback. Whoa, here's what I hear you telling me. Is this accurate? That's a good way to get further data. You can observe your counselee outside of the counseling session, like if you go to the same church. You can listen to the prayers of your counselee in the counseling session. That can reveal the heart. People often pray for what they think is most important. And you can also use certain homework, homework for data gathering, like journaling. Now, for this class, I'm not requiring you to show me your journals, but when you're working in a relationship with a counselee, that actually is something that you can do. Say, I want you to journal, and then I'd like you to turn in a copy of that to me so that I can look at it and understand the situation more. 
Now, obviously, if you're asking lots of questions, you need to make sure that you listen well to the answers. In the flesh, people are naturally not good listeners. But you need to be, as a counselor for Christ, if you're going to, by God's grace, uncover your brother or your sister's heart and minister the gospel to it. You need to be a good listener. Here are certain items that you should listen for, definitely listen for, mark it if if you detect it in your counselee. Listen for blame shifting. Words like, I can't, I'm unable, it's too much. A victim mentality. Using medical terminology to describe sin. I have this sickness, this illness, this disorder. Listen for hopelessness. Listen for rabbit trails that are getting you off of the the main issue. You might have to point that out to your counselee and get them back on track. Listen for evasiveness. Listen for exaggerations, which is really a form of lying if not used rhetorically. Listen for defensiveness. Listen for their judging other people's motives. I know why my spouse did this, and that's why I resent it. How do you know that? Listen also for a willingness to accept responsibility. And everything you listen for has to be negative. Listen to what they don't say. Sometimes the silence tells you a lot. And as you listen, make sure that you're listening with kindness, focus, and patience. Don't interrupt. Don't jump to conclusions. Don't let your mind wander. Don't do distracting things. Don't allow your counselee to waste time with rabbit trails. Don't hesitate to ask for clarification when you don't understand. And when counseling more than one person together, don't allow one person to dominate the conversation. You're counseling a couple, and only the husband speaks, or only the wife speaks. Don't let that happen. You might need to, as Dr. Street reminded us many times, you might need to use the word whoa a lot in counseling. Whoa! Let's pause for a second. You indicate that there's something important in the conversation that you need to address before the conversation can get back on track. Don't be afraid to say, whoa. Now, when in the counseling process do you gather data? Well, all throughout. But most of it, the majority of it, should be at the beginning in your first few sessions. Actually, your first session together is mostly just to gather data. You do want to give a little bit of instruction and hope as you communicate expectations. But... You really are just trying to find out about the situation. Maybe 30, 40 minutes of your counseling session is just you asking questions. Most of your data gathering is in the beginning. It's kind of like, if you can imagine a graph, I wasn't able to put one in here, but if data gathering starts at the top of the graph in the beginning, it gets less and less as the counseling goes on, whereas giving instruction gets more and more as the counseling goes on. And that makes sense, right? Because as you've gathered the data, then you're actually able to communicate what they need. Data all by itself doesn't do anything, however. You've got to do something with it. And that's our fourth and final step today. You need to interpret the data. You need to interpret the data. Just like Christians often misunderstand the Bible by moving too quickly, So Christian counselors can misinterpret people and their spiritual needs by failing to take the proper time both to gather data and to think through it to come up with an interpretation of what's needed. We see a good biblical example of this in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. This is the story about Hannah and Eli. 
Remember Eli, that man of God, high priest of Israel? He saw this certain woman acting strangely near the tabernacle. It's one of those times of year that families come to sacrifice to God. So families were probably feasting, eating, and drinking as they enjoy their sacrificial portions. And this woman has come after dinner time, probably at evening. She looks like she's in hysterics. She's sobbing uncontrollably. She's also doing this weird thing where her lips are moving, but she's not saying anything. Remember, people at that time mostly prayed and even thought out loud, not silently. So Eli, the high priest, is observing this data and the surrounding circumstances, and he comes up with an interpretation of what's going on. The woman is drunk. She is a drunkard. And so what does she need? A reproof against drunkenness, which is what he gives her. Eli did gather some good and true data, but it wasn't enough. He hadn't done enough data gathering, and his interpretation applied some assumptions that were not necessarily justified. Ah, you know, she's just another one of these women of Israel, drunk, doesn't really care about God, just here for the sacrifice and the feast. But he'd spent more time gathering data before offering his solution. He spent more time thinking through it. He could have ministered to her in the way that she needed. And she gives him some of that extra information. <laughs> he would have discovered that Hannah was not a worthless woman, but a woman sorely distressed, as she says, by childlessness and even the provocation of another wife. She didn't need reproof. She needed consolation and encouragement. And that's really what Eli gives her once he figures out, oh, 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 okay, this is what's going on. Oh, okay. May the Lord grant your petition. Go in peace. Now, as biblical counselors, we want to make sure that we don't make that mistake that Eli did, or try and avoid making that mistake. We want to make sure that we are interpreting people and their situations rightly so that we can minister to them in the way that they really need. How do we do that? Well, let me give you some ways. First of all, again, we need to pray. Just as we need God's help interpreting his word, we need God's help understanding and interpreting people. He's the God of all insight. It makes sense to ask for his help and depend on him. Second, we need to make sure that we're supplying as our authoritative standard and set of background assumptions what God says in his word. We need to be operating from a biblical perspective. Not interpreting people according to our subjective opinions and preferences, but rather what God says trustworthily in his word. Bring to mind the truths we've talked about in these sessions that come from the Bible as to why a person does what he does. What is the state of people in the world? We want to run through or run a person's behavioral responses, thoughts, attitudes, desires, values, expectations, motivations, all the things that we've gathered as data. We want to run them through the sift of God's word. See if we can discover the most fundamental of questions. What is going on in this person's heart? going on in the heart? What's the theme? What's the heart theme? What does my counselee really value in his heart? Maybe even as a lust or an idol. You're looking for patterns in the gathered data. That's what's really going to point you to the heart. Are there typical behavioral responses in certain situations? Typical thoughts, typical attitudes, typical interpretations from my counselee of what's going on? Typical longings, typical desires, typical demands. These are going to point to what the heart really values. We'll be greatly helped in this process if we continue to use biblical labels and descriptions of what we see. I've stressed this already to you in this course. 
Remember, labels suggest what? Labels suggest solutions. So use biblical labels. Don't think in terms of codependency, but fear of man and love of man's approval. Don't think in terms of eating disorders, but idolatry to body image or pleasure or a lack of self-control or an extreme desire for control. Sometimes that's where an eating disorder comes from. Of course, pay attention to organic factors that may also pop up in your data gathering. Could physical issues be contributing to this inner man struggle, and if so, how? Once you've detected some patterns, you want to be prayerfully formulating an interpretation of the nature and causes of a person's problem. Grounded in Scripture, of course. Begin to say, all right, how does this fit together? What's a proper explanation for what's going on from a biblical perspective? You can use your own experience as part of coming up with this interpretation and some of the experiences of others. After all, 1 Corinthians 10.13 does say that every temptation is common to man. So you will see repeat situations. But remember that people are sometimes a little different. Your experience may not actually explain what's going on. Don't just say, oh, I've seen this before. I know what it is. Remember what Eli did. Remember what Job's friends did. Don't just assume, even as you bring in some of your own life experience. Come up with an interpretation. Actually come up with multiple interpretations. Say, all right, here's one explanation of what's going on. But what's another possibility? Here's another explanation for what's going on. Which of these better fits the data? Come up with multiple interpretations. And once you brainstorm these, test them. Test their accuracy and strength. Review the data again to see which explanation has the most and the least support. Seek input from others, another counselor or mature believer. Here again is why I say you want to be careful in how you articulate confidentiality you might go to another counselor and say, hey, I, I'm trying to help someone right now who has this, this data. What do you think is the explanation that makes the most sense? So you can be discreet about it. Don't have to give names and super personal details. And you can get help. Get help from somebody else. And then, oh, yeah. If you don't see further need for revision, Actually, present your interpretation to your counselee. Ask for his feedback. My brother, I've been considering everything you've shared with me and what I've observed in our sessions together. I've been praying about it, thinking about it according to the Bible, and here's what I think is going on in your heart. What do you think? He may give you some helpful feedback. He may resist it. If you see that there's something that he mentions, that say, oh, okay, I didn't even consider that. Be ready to revise your interpretation. Adjust as needed. You, you're testing it. You formulated it, and you're testing it. You compare the data. You look for patterns. You come up with the interpretation, and you test it. And then once you've sufficiently tested it, and you feel validated in the interpretation you come up with, well, then it's time to actually formulate a strategy of how to address it. I think we understand what the problem is. You love marriage too much, or you think that God has mistreated you, or you feel like you can't trust God. You've said that to me, and I see that now from our, our, our times together. Here's how we're going to seek to address that issue of the inner man. Formulate a strategy to help your counselee overcome his heart problems. Present this to your counselee. 
Clarify him. The issues you think you need to deal with, the best order to deal with those issues, and the manner and methods that you will use to help him. We're going to talk about this, and this is the homework I'm going to give you, and this is why I think it's going to be helpful to you. And as you begin to implement your solution, you may still need to continue to revise your interpretation and your proposed methods of helping. You may find that there's a different heart issue or a deeper one. Don't be afraid to adjust. Even to go back to the beginning, if need be. It's humbling when we misinterpret. But God is still the powerful, illuminating God. Even if you need to adjust your interpretation, you can continue to show your counselee that you're serious about helping him change and confident in God's grace to bring it about. Say, you know, we were thinking this before, but I think from what's happened now, it's more this. And so we're going to adjust our approach. That's fine. That's fine to express that. Your confidence in God will help your counselee have confidence too, even when you need to revise your approach. Now, what will be your main tool in bringing about these heart solutions for your counselee? Well, instruction. Instruction from the Word of God. This is what biblical counseling is, right? At its core, it's instruction. That's the fifth step in our method, what we'll pick up with next time. I know that was a lot of information. Hope you find that helpful. And again, I'll send an email follow-up with this, the notes from the slide after in the afternoon. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your sufficient word. Thank you, Lord, for the equipping, even practical equipping, for how to help one another in a focused way of discipleship. Lord, raise up, equip, use your people here at Calvary as counselors to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.